Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Hi, Sefi. Tell us about our guest this week. Well, Manya... I spoke with Jordana Cutler, Facebook's head of policy for Israel and the Jewish diaspora, about the company's decision to ban Holocaust denial content from the platform. That is very encouraging news. I'm really looking forward to hearing that. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you next week, Sefi, during our first live podcast of the pandemic on October 20th at 4 p.m., I hope our listeners will tune in to hear from our friend Jacob Kornblue of Jewish Insider to talk about the unrest in Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods of Brooklyn, where protests over COVID-19 restrictions have led to occasional violence, some of it targeting him. Go to AJC.org slash People of the Pod to register. And now, let's hit the show. On Monday, in a major departure from the company's previous position, Facebook announced that it would ban Holocaust denial content from the platform. AJC is proud of our sustained advocacy to help Facebook arrive at this decision. Joining us now to discuss the new policy is Jordana Cutler, Facebook's head of policy for Israel and the Jewish diaspora. Jordana, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me here. Now, in 2018, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg famously said that he hates Holocaust denial, but that he doesn't believe it is Facebook's place to censor the free exchange of ideas. This week, Facebook reversed course and announced that Holocaust denial would no longer be permitted on the platform. What changed between then and now? Well, I think I'll start just by quoting Mark, because I could say a lot of things, but I think the most important thing is what he said himself. I think what's really interesting, Mark doesn't post about every policy change and every step that the company takes, but he felt it was important uh, that he post. And he said himself, I've struggled with the tension between standing for freedom of expression and the harm caused by minimizing or denying the horror of the Holocaust. My thinking has evolved as I've seen data showing an increase in anti-Semitic violence as our wider policies have also changed on hate speech. Drawing the right lines between what is and isn't acceptable speech isn't straightforward, but with the current state of the world, I believe this is the right balance. And I just, I felt it was important just to read all of his words. I'm, I'm sure many of you saw it on Facebook and then read a hundred other news articles, but to go back into what Mark said, his thinking evolved for two reasons. One, data in the real world, And I'm really actually excited to get the data from the new AJC survey coming up. And not to give you a plug, no one asked me to do that. (laughs) No, 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 by all means, plug away. That data is important to us. We we look at it and we see it as a connection between what we see online and in the offline world. That's important to us. And second is the discussions that we've had with people around the world. That's also important to us and you guys have been a part of that. So again, these processes evolve. And I think it's important to note all of our processes and all of our policies evolve. So Mark, you know, having announcing a policy change um, isn't that unusual. This one obviously is something that we've been all very focused on. So it stands out to us. Facebook famously has, I think, more than a billion, maybe even two billion monthly active users, something like that, right? The, the number is- A little is, more, but I'm not counting. <laughs> the number is is way up there and, and certainly makes you number one among social media platforms. So I would imagine with so many people so frequently using Facebook, the sheer number of posts, individual posts in Facebook's history must be well, well into the billions. 
does this decision apply retroactively? So if someone five years ago posted some piece of Holocaust denial content in among these, you know, many billions of posts, is Facebook using some kind of a system to find that and remove it? It's a great question because we actually find and remove content two ways. The first is our AI systems that look and find for the stuff. And the second is user reports. And I'm hoping many of the listeners here, when they see content that they think violates our policies, not just our hate speech policy, but any of our policies, that they report it because every piece of content, whether it's a comment, a page, a post, all of those uh, pieces of content are things that you can report and have checked by a reviewer. And those reviewers are people that are based all around the world that are operating 24 seven and operating in every language that's on our platform to find those violations. It's important to say that no matter what changes we've made, as soon as content is violating our platform, we will remove it because hate speech, uh, what it was two years ago, isn't necessarily hate speech today. And that's not just because we've changed our policies. The words that we use as slurs change over time. And so speech changes as time evolves. We also take a look at those changes and reevaluate our policies. So of course, if we find content because it's reported to us or because we find it, no matter when it was posted, we will remove that from our platform. Now, it will take time when it comes to this new policy to get it up to speed and to try to get as much of this content off. One of the things about AI is that it takes time for our systems to learn and to be able to use automated technology to find things and remove them uh, does take a learning process, especially considering how many languages we have. So I just encourage everybody listening, if you see Holocaust denial or distortion content, to report it. But I would like to flag that we might make mistakes, especially in the beginning. You'll have an opportunity to appeal that mistake. And if we continue to make mistakes, I can promise you that we'll continue to work on improving. One thing I've I've seen kind of these things will go viral when when mistakes are made sometimes, uh, you know, on, on Twitter, of course, not not Facebook, but you'll see that someone, you know, intended or someone did, you know, share their great grandmother's story of being in the Holocaust and something in there. There's a line about how, you know, someone once told her that her story was made up or something and enough words are used in just the right pattern that the AI picks it up and flags it as something like that. So I guess those are the kinds of, of mistakes that that can happen. Is there going to be some kind of a notice, right? I go on my Facebook and I like post my usual daily Holocaust denial post and 10 of my friends like it and two more comment and, and whatever. And then someone says like, Sefi, what the hell are you doing? Like, this is terrible. And they report me. And so Facebook becomes aware of it and they take it down as well they should. What happens then? Well, it's going to be the same as any other content on our platform. And what mm -hmm. I think it's important to note is the policy that we came out with to remove Holocaust denial and distortion content is a subsection of an existing hate speech policy mm -hmm. that already provided a lot of protections against hate speech or anti-Semitic content against Jews. And so for us, it's, I wouldn't say reinventing the wheel here. What we're doing is adding on to a policy that we already started in August. I kind of look at that as the moment where these changes really took shape, where we added a line into the hate speech policy that said we will remove harmful stereotypes against Jewish people that claims that they're controlling the world or its major institutions. And so this is going to be a line under that. If you go in and anyone can go to our community standards and see, there's a new bullet point under there that says Holocaust denial and distortion. Anyone who reports content for violating our hate speech policy will be treated the same. Anyone who's reporting any content is treated the same. So we're not doing something separate um, for this policy. So just in general, when you report content, I think it's important to know that that's an anonymous report. So people should feel safe mm -hmm. to report. 
the person on the other side, if that content isn't violating, they're not going to even know that that content was reported. But if the content is violating, then they will get a message from us telling them that the content was removed and we will tell them for what policy it was removed. We won't be specific as to what word was violating. We will tell them what policy. And that's been a huge undertaking from our engineering teams. We usually just in the past would say this was violating our community standards. And we understood that that wasn't enough information for people. So now we explain what policy it was violating. It's important to note that people report content for many different reasons, but when we see that report, we'll look at it under all of our policies. So you might report something for being hate speech, but we actually removed it because it was nudity. We will evaluate all that content and then let the person know as to why. We also explain to them that if you continue to violate our policies, we will block you from using our services or eventually remove you from our services. Mm -hmm. And just since you mentioned uh, other Facebook services, Facebook is more than just Facebook, right? Does this policy apply on Instagram? And then probably most complicatedly, does it apply on WhatsApp as well? So it does apply on Instagram. All of our content policies, anyone that reads our community standards, those are applicable both to Facebook and Instagram. WhatsApp is an end-to-end -end, uh, encrypted messaging service. And so our content policies in terms of controlling or looking at the way in which people use language is not applicable in WhatsApp. We do want to make sure that we're working with law enforcement and making sure that our services are not being used for things like child pornography or terrorism. And we have some ways to be able to do that. But again, there's a very different set of challenges when it comes to end-to-end -end encrypted messaging. Mm -hmm. Um, Cheryl Sandberg, Facebook's COO, met this week with AJC CEO David Harris and said of Facebook's work with AJC on this issue that, quote, external perspectives help us improve our policies. Our experience with AJC has been that you are people who we can really trust and learn from. Can you just pull back the curtain a little bit for our listeners and share how did Facebook benefit from its engagement with AJC and, and how did that engagement factor into this important decision? Of course. So I think, first of all, I'll just use this opportunity to thank AJC. It's been really exciting to get to know everyone. Um, and I think that these relationships really help to bring the company to a different place. So first, thank you. Second, what does that mean? Why am I talking to AJC, um, you know, to go to your question? Facebook doesn't operate in a vacuum. Facebook hires people that come from a variety of different backgrounds. So my background, for example, for anyone who might not know, you know, I worked a lot in uh, the Israeli government. I have a background in Jewish diaspora affairs. And I know a lot about the issues that we're talking about in addition to my 13 years of Jewish day school education and going to Brandeis. So I feel quite <laughs> confident walking into this. I mean, I'm not an academic, et cetera, but the fact that Facebook is hiring someone like me with my background to deal with this issue says something about what the company feels about these issues. And the same thing for all the other issues that we're dealing with. When it comes to women's safety, we have people on the team that have been rape crisis counselors. We have lawyers, a lot of people that have come you know, from military backgrounds around the world. That doesn't mean that we understand every problem happening in the real world. And so engagement with civil society and communities around the world is very important. And so we've always worked with the Jewish community but I would say that over the last year and a half or so, um, we've really tried to up the ante on making sure that we are plugged into what's happening in the Jewish world. And that doesn't just mean I want to say about hate speech and anti-Semitism. There's a lot of really other positive things that are happening on our platform that we can discuss and engage with the Jewish community. And one doesn't negate the other. Um, but I think it's important to note that the engagement doesn't necessarily mean it's all around content discussions. But, you know, we do a lot of programs related to positive messages 
messaging, what we call counter speech campaigns, et cetera, using our platform and the power of the platform to connect. And so AJC has been one of the communities that has been really engaged in our stakeholder roundtables, which means that we brought many different Jewish organizations together in the United States and also in Europe to really delve in and discuss these issues. In addition to this latest Holocaust denial decision, Facebook also recently decided to ban content promoting the complex web of conspiracy theories called QAnon. Um, are these two decisions part of a growing realization that Facebook needs to take a more proactive role in combating hate speech? Should we be looking at this as a, a body of policy? Is Facebook moving away beyond just the Holocaust decision? Is Facebook moving away from this idea that it can serve as a neutral platform for people to spout any view? Well, I mean, I would say that if we're looking at the history of Facebook, the way that we see people using language on our platform has greatly evolved. So I would say that 100% we weren't three months ago or even a year ago saying, you know, we're a neutral player and have no policies and take no stance. We've always had very robust policies. And, you know, I don't feel like I need to be modest here and say that Facebook has really been the leader in writing and creating very robust community standards. And one of the important things of those community standards is that they work in concert with one another. And so what you mentioned about looking at these networks of extremists, for example, they actually don't fall under our hate speech policy, we look at them under a policy called dangerous organizations and individuals. That policy is really, really important because what it does is it looks at activity not only on our platform and not looking only at just a post or a piece of content, but looking at the combination between offline behavior and how that connects to what it means on our platform. So an example would be when we banned Louis Farrakhan, you know, quite a while ago from being on Facebook, that wasn't because he had, you know, a series of 15 posts that violated, so we removed him. We have a team of people that's focused on looking at people that we would designate to take off of our platform completely, that they're not allowed to have a place on our platform, even if they were posting a page with their favorite recipes or pictures of their latest travels. We don't allow them to be on our platform. And this policy of dangerous organization and individuals looks at both terrorist organizations and extremist groups, you know, not just from the right, but from the left and anywhere they might be coming from. And so we have a team of people that solely focus on this. It's led by an amazing person named Brian Fishman. And I would encourage anyone actually to go follow him on Twitter. Um, and I know I gave a plug for another platform. It's totally okay. He gives amazing announcements on these issues. He also posts in our newsroom um, constantly when we make these announcements. And his job and the job of his team, which is of over 100 people around the world, really researching only um, these issues, um, would be when does a person's behavior go to the step where we don't want them on our platform? And so we've been doing this for years. Obviously, we're stepping it up because the activity in the real world is stepping up. And so we're going to act in concert to what's happening in the real world. In addition to the Holocaust denial decision and the QAnon decision, there was one other recent buzzed about Facebook policy decision, which I think you actually alluded to a few minutes ago. This was about restricting many types of political ads on the platform, especially, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a permanent decision or kind of a placeholder decision right now in the run up to the election here in the States. But I think my question is, I wonder if, in general, Facebook thinks that the internet needs to move away from the kind of constantly quarreling, always at the boiling point vibe that has settled in over the past decade or so, right? Like the internet was once thought of as this like friendly, magical place. And now I think for so many of us, it feels like a chore or a cesspool or, you know, pick whatever kind of bad simile you want. 
So let's close here with one last question. Jordana, do you think Facebook can play a role in helping us all be kinder online? Yes. <laughs> it's a very simple yes, but I'll just say one extra thing. I think we've tried to give people tools as much as they can to control the experience that they have on Facebook, to be able to pick the kind of content that you want to see from your friends and family, what you want to see first, to be able to have more controls over the ads that you see. Um, you know, I think that there's this concept of it's all so bad out there, but you also can control a lot of um, what, what you want to be around. You don't want to see news sites, you only want to see your friends, then you can do that. And so I think it's important to remember that you know, it's a few extra clicks and a little more time on your phone, but you can work to control and control also the amount of time you're spending on Facebook. You can set reminders to remind yourself that you've been on for an hour and turn it off. We created that because we knew it was important to people. But I also think that the power of counter speech, as I've mentioned a few times, does help to remind people to be kinder. You know, I think that people and organizations can use the power of our platform to spread messages about reminding people to speak online the way that they speak in the real world. And I think that that balance of, you know, a person that you're talking to on the street or in a classroom or in your house or at your dining room table should be much more, you know, usually more uh, respectful than it is to somebody online. And we're, you know, and actually working with a lot of organizations to empower their kind of campaigns to get this message out to people. So that's the long version to a yes. And I really hope so. And I'm proud to be a part of a company that wants to make the world a better place. Well, Jordana, thank you so much for taking the time. And I know that my colleagues at AJC and I look forward to continuing to partner with you and your colleagues at Facebook to help make the world a better place. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Sefi, when you're gathered with your friends and family at the Shabbat Table this week, what will you be talking about? There's a lot that we don't know about Cleopatra. We don't know what she looked like, for one, unless you put much stock in tiny 2,000-year-old imprints on coins from her era. We don't know, then, if she was as beautiful as the legends have it. Though we know her father was Macedonian Greek, we don't know who her mother was. There's a lot we do know about Gal Gadot, the Israeli actor who became world famous as Wonder Woman. We know she is talented. We know she is charming. We know she is the seventh generation of her family to have been born in Israel, and of course, hails from Israel, as do all Jews. So, in many ways, it seems like an inspired choice to have one person of Mediterranean extraction, Gal Gadot, play another, Cleopatra, in a new movie focusing on the Egyptian monarch. Indeed, recent research relying on genetic testing of mummies has demonstrated that the closest match for an ancient Egyptian wouldn't be an Arab or a North African person, but someone of Levantine heritage, like, for example, a Jew. Guess what happened next? The casting announcement incited a series of angry tweets, which have since metastasized into think pieces in The Guardian and Al Jazeera and the like. The piece in The Guardian begins by calling Godot's casting as, quote, a backwards step for Hollywood representation, and concludes by saying that, quote, Gal Gadot has proved herself that a nobody can become an A-lister when given the chance to play a massive role. Yikes. It's one thing to talk about representation in movies, where, again, Gadot, as a Mediterranean woman, is a logical choice to play another Mediterranean woman. But it's quite another to demean a talented woman by saying that her star power is only the result of the happy accident of being cast as Wonder Woman. 
I saw at least one person on Twitter, an account that regularly posts anti-Israel content, tweet that Gal Gadot is actually too ugly to play Cleopatra. They called her Manish. That's a tweet that was celebrated with many Palestinian flag emojis in the replies. Folks, let me assure you, Gal Gadot is not ugly. What do we learn from this? Well, people on Twitter are hateful and stupid, for one, but we already knew that. I'm actually not sure what our takeaways are, but what I do know is that at my Shabbat table, I'll be talking about how excited I am to see Gal Gadot star as Cleopatra. Sefi, this week at our Shabbat table, we will be talking about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Now, I'm in that season of life when I'm reading nothing but children's books, a second time around. Last week, Max and Rose and I tore through books 23 through 28 of the Magic Treehouse series and finished one of my favorites about that wacky Willy Wonka. And since reading it as a young girl, I've learned that Roald Dahl's life was fascinating and sad and tragic. If you dare climb his family tree, you'll find plenty of fodder for page six. I've also learned that he was a rabid anti-Semite and very proud of that fact. In a 1983 interview, about the time I was introduced to him, he told a reporter, there is a trait in the Jewish character that does provoke animosity. Maybe it's a kind of lack of generosity toward non-Jews. I mean, there's always a reason why anti-anything crops up anywhere. Even a stinker like Hitler didn't just pick on them for no reason. Ugh, and that's just one of many repulsive opinions he shared. Now, this revelation has led me to read these novels with a more cautious eye, combing for anti-Jewish sentiments or dog whistles. But it's also led me to question whether I should be reading these novels to my children at all. Should they be introduced to the mad genius of Roald Dahl, or should I find other literary heroes to encourage their creativity and love of literature? You know, authors who don't hate Jews. The answer came over the weekend, when we actually sat down to watch the 1971 adaptation starring Gene Wilder of Blessed Memory, who, yes, was Jewish. Roald Dahl hated that adaptation, which kind of made me love it even more. But here's what he really would have hated. Earlier this year, Netflix announced yet another adaptation by Jewish director Taika Waititi of Jojo Rabbit fame. Now, if you haven't seen Jojo Rabbit, you aren't familiar with how Waititi portrayed Hitler. It was hilarious unsettling, but most importantly, probably had Adolf rolling in his grave. The mere prospect of Watiti, a Jew, taking artistic liberties with Roald Dahl's work is delicious. By doing so, he's preserving and honoring what matters, the living, breathing words. Watiti will present them in the proper context, which is what I decided we will do as we continue to read, eventually discussing the very flawed man behind the words. Childhood wouldn't be the same without Willy Wonka, the BFG, or James and the Giant Peach, which Max and Rose started reading this week. And I'm not about to let an anti-Semite ruin that fantastic journey for my kids. So, ginormous stone fruit. That is what we will be talking about at our Shabbat table this week. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify or learn more at ajc.org slash people of the pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. 
Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz, and our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.